My grandmother lived with us when I was a child, and she was quite a character. She liked to wear very feminine flowered dresses, and she always smelled of flowered perfume. And yet, she loved to watch the westerns on TV. And even more than that, she liked to watch those old-time wrestling matches that were even more fake than any you've ever seen before. And she knew the names of all the wrestlers and who she wanted to boo for and who she wanted to cheer on. There was never a doubt in my mind that she loved me. Her eyes twinkled whenever she saw me and I could talk to her about absolutely anything. She died when I was in fifth grade and we went to bury her in another state in the little town where my grandmother and my grandfather used to run the general store when my dad was growing up. Some of the strangers who came to the memorial service gave me one of my favorite images of my grandma, even though I wasn't alive to have seen it. Back in the Great Depression, since they had that little store, there would be times where there was food left over that would spoil if it wasn't used. And so when my grandmother cooked dinner every night, she cooked up everything that she could and all of the neighbors or any stranger that walked by knew they could come to her porch and have a dinner as long as the food lasted. At a time in history when so many people were just trying to survive, my grandmother focused on generosity with what little she had instead of worrying about and holding on to everything she could just for her own family. As I heard people in that little town talk about my grandma, it was clear to me that her graciousness to others really made a difference. The parable Jesus tells us in our gospel reading today is a very different type of story. It's about feeling entitled to hold tightly even to those things that don't really belong to us. I wasn't thrilled when I saw this was the parable coming up in the lectionary because through the years it has often been misunderstood by people trying to justify anti-Semitism. That is not at all the message of this parable. First, let us look at the context. In Matthew's Gospel, it's only five days before Jesus' death. He has turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple, obviously upsetting the Pharisees, who are already questioning what he does and what he says that continually challenge them. The conflicts that Jesus has with the Pharisees are not about their faith itself. Jesus himself is a Jew. He's not trying to criticize or condemn fellow Jews. He's protesting the way that these Pharisees are going along with the Romans in order to keep their own power and hurt their own people. Jesus wants them to repent, to let go of the things that are taking them in a different direction from where God wants them to go. In those days, it was not unusual for a landowner to have a farm or a vineyard and to let tenant farmers take care of it. They would pay rent by giving the owner his share of the produce. 
Only in Jesus' parables, when the landowner sent his workers out to pick up his share, the tenant farmers began to violently attack them. They were just renters, but they were acting like they owned the vineyard. While we might assume that our place in this parable would be the landowner's servants, if we take a good look at ourselves, we might realize that we sometimes act like those tenant farmers. No, I don't mean that we necessarily follow in their violent ways, but there are surely times when we act as though the world is ours, that everything we have belongs to us, not to God. In some ways, it is simply human instinct kicking in to protect what we see as ours. We work hard to provide for ourselves and our families, and we forget that we are caretakers of God's world. God has given us the abundance of this life and the gift of faith, yet it's difficult to remember that we didn't acquire these things for ourselves. That attitude can even happen in churches sometimes. One of the expressions that I've often heard in different churches by congregation members and even other clergy is to use the term, my church. Only it isn't ours, is it? It's the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it seems as though we don't understand the difference between service and entitlement. And when that happens, we stop listening to God and listen only to ourselves. The whispers of the Holy Spirit pass right by us. Reverend Robin Wright tells a story that shows how we can understand what it means to be the church, when we, how we misunderstand what it means to be the church when we claim it as our own. She says, I remember a day when I walked into the church office only to encounter a red-faced, seething Jared, an elder in the church. I had always found him to be a bit arrogant, with anger simmering just below the surface. On this particular day, however, his rage was not masked. With fire in his eyes and a scary edge to his voice, he told me that he had just caught five little boys roaming around the church building. He wanted me to call the police and have them arrested. Were they stealing something, I asked? No, but they might if I hadn't discovered them and thrown them out. You threw them out? I asked, trying to remain calm. Well, let's just say I marched them out the door. I cringed, imagining the scene and the fear and the hurt those little boys must have experienced. This is my church, Jared said, and those little boys had no business being in here. They were trespassing. Still trying to remain calm, I could feel my own anger surfacing. Jared, this isn't your church. The things in this place do not belong to you or to anyone. It is God's church, and I don't believe those children were hurting anything by being here. Did you ask them if they needed something? Did you ask them if we could help them with anything? With this, his face got redder and a little spittle came out as he spoke. I think you need to call the police. With this, he turned and went out the door, slamming it behind him. 
Obviously, this man's narrow-mindedness was blinding him to the gift it could be to have five little boys interested in any way, in any church, even if it was only a place to hang out. But I imagine his possessive view of the church kept him from noticing the presence of God, not only in the gift of these children, but in many other ways. A possessive way of living in this world can creep up on us when we forget that the church of Jesus Christ is not ours to own or control. The world trains us in different values, but a self-centered, tightly held life will never bring us the inner joy we can know by letting go of our grip and trusting in God's values. When we are aware that we are stewards of the earth and not owners, that we are also caretakers of one another, it changes the way we see things, doesn't it? How do you and I share the fruits of God's kingdom? Just a little later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives us an answer. Give food to the hungry and water to the thirsty. Welcome the stranger clothe and take care of those who are poor and those who are sick, visit the prisoner and the lonely. When we realize that it's not all about us, we begin to take better care of the planet and the people on it. What is really wonderful about the parable today is the reminder that God doesn't give up on us. Note that the landowner doesn't send the servants out to the vineyard just once, but twice. Then he sends his son. Jesus asked the question to the Pharisees, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? But Jesus never says they will put them to a miserable death. That's the answer of the Pharisees. Instead, Jesus asks them if they ever heard the line from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Listen to the way Eugene Patterson translates another part of that psalm in his paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. Thank God, because God is good and God's love never quits. And you, clan of Aaron, tell the world, God's love never quits. And you who are in awe of God, join in, God's love never quits. When the ancient Israelites sang that song, they would remember that their ancestor has ancestors had been slaves and that they had wandered around in the desert for so many years without lands or homes or vineyards. When that time would come every year that they would particularly remember that journey, many of them would do kind of a hiking, camping trip out into the wilderness a little bit so that they could really remember. And they would sing about how God's love endures. And then Jesus comes along and says that he is the stone that was rejected. He is the cornerstone. When we open our hearts to Jesus, he becomes the cornerstone of our lives. The love of Christ, a love that never ends, is offered by a God whose love never quits. Soon after Jesus tells this parable, he is hoisted on a cross and killed. And yet we know that was not the end. God's love 
endured and calls you and me to a new life, not just in heaven someday, but here and now. In our reading from Philippians, we hear Paul writing a letter from a jail cell, joyfully talking about how Christ has changed him. Once, all of his energy was tied up in his reputation, his ancestry, his ability to know and keep rules, even his persecution of the church, as Steve mentioned with the children, giving his resume. And now, Paul writes that what he once thought was so important just isn't anymore. You can feel entitled when you are filled. You cannot feel entitled when you are filled with the love of God in Christ. Being a follower of Christ, which he once thought was foolish, is now everything to him. What Paul found in Jesus helped him to let go of the idea that life was all about him. Now it was all about seeking to know Christ. Even the sufferings that he has gone through and he will go through are secondary to his calling. While we speak about our own calling as Christians, we have to admit that we have a hard time giving up anything for a life of discipleship. We don't even like to be inconvenienced by it. It wasn't that Paul wanted to give up the life of privilege and esteem he once had. He certainly didn't want to go to jail or lose his freedom or suffer, but Christ was first in his life. When Christ is the cornerstone of your life, things look different, don't they? If only we and the church could keep the main thing the main thing. Paul says that he presses on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenly call in Jesus Christ. Notice he's not saying that his goal or the prize is heaven itself, but his heavenly call. How does your deep joy and mine take hold of us? Or does it? How does it take hold of us if we let our calling, let the tug of God on our hearts, the message of Christ's love and our need to love the world as he did, be at our core and shape who we are? Of course we won't be able to do it well every day, but we will hold on to the hope, we will press on toward the goal, because we remember that God never quits on us. Hallelujah. Amen.